Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is September 19th, 2014, and this is episode 1430 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, it is, well, what is it today? I can't remember. What is today? Oh, that's right. It's Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right. Friday, Friday, Friday. Time for your calls to the Think Line. 866-65-THINK. 866-65-T-H-I-N-K. Uh, if you give us a call there, you will not hear, Hi, caller, this is Jack. Please tell me your Because it's a podcast, so it's pre-recorded, so... What you'll get is a voice message. You can leave me that voicemail, and it'll magically, through the Internet, show up in my email box as a, as a WAV file, and I'll listen to it and then decide whether I want to put it on the air and answer it or not. And, and the reality is I don't even get to listen to them all because of the number of them. But it's not massive. It's probably more likely to get your question or comment, suggestion, whatever, on the air as a call than it is through an email because there's more email stuff than call stuff. So uh, do consider calling in. Again, the number is 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. If you don't have letters on your dial, 866-658-4465. Yeah, we call it the Think Line. And uh, when you do, call from a quiet area. Call with some bars on your phone if you're using a cell phone. And uh, speak loudly and clearly. And don't talk into the phone and then turn your head away from the phone and then back to the phone and then away from the phone and then back. Because then it's really hard to fix that. And I might not just use your call. And don't call with a chainsaw or a weed eater. And if you do those things, you'll probably get on the air. One last thing, always ask your question or make your point immediately. Then give me your details. And then if you want to say something nice about the show or bad about the show, say it at the end. Works out better that way. Trust me, I'm a professional. I do this for a living every day. Anyway, with that, let's uh, take care of our sponsors before we uh, get to your call. Sponsor of the day, number one, it is KnifeKits.com. I believe America is devolving into what I call a skillless society. Like, the average person can't do crap anymore. They just can't. Like, if something breaks, they're like, oh, i got to get a new one, or i got to get a guy to fix it. And the guy that knows how to fix it probably doesn't know how to fix anything but that one thing. It, we used to be a society where people knew how to do all kinds of things. Yesterday, kind of as an aside here, I put up a post on Facebook, and I put up a bunch of these little yellow thingies that look like you shoot them out of a gun. They're actually the little yellow thingies, for those of you that are old enough to remember that you pop into a record, a forty-five record, and a lot of people didn't know what they were. That's fine. It doesn't really apply. But I thought that was cool, so I, I would find something else like that. So I put up an old skate key, like for the old skates that came apart. And um, I put that up, and a lot of people knew what it was. A lot of people had no idea what it was. A lot of people thought it was a bottle opener or a, a key for like a chest freezer or something. And you know, it started making me think. It made me think about when I was a kid, and we had those skates like that. Those were your outside skates, right? You couldn't take them to the skating rink because you tore up the wheels, and they wouldn't let you have them in the skating rink. But you open the skate, and it's, it expanded and contracted, and you put it over your shoes. And you wore the skates with your shoes, with your tennis shoes. And that was so your parents didn't have to buy you a new pair of skates every time your foot got bigger. They would just adapt to your shoes, and the ski is what you know did that. When you took this key, you took the, the, the skate apart, you get yourself something like a 2 by 4 and you put it on each end of it, so you had something like a narrow skateboard, and then you... You know, built a, 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 a column for it, you know, a 
in the front, put a T on that, put a couple braces on it, you had a scooter. Remember the scooter craze back in the 90s? All the kids had the little... We had scooters back in the 70s. We built them ourselves. What does that have to do with knife kits? Well, if a 10-year-old kid knew how to build a scooter out of a skate in the 1970s and 80s, and today they can't, what does that say about our skills? Being able to do things with our hands. It's in a downward spiral. Hey, get a knife kit. Work on it with your kid. They'll learn all kinds of things from that one little project. Hey, if you can find an old pair of skates, build an old school scooter. Look them up online. They're kind of cool. Next up today, Backwoods Home Magazine. Um, I've been listening, or not listening, reading Backwoods Home Magazine. It's almost far enough back in our relationship that people still had skills in America. <laughs> Seriously. 1993 is when I found the magazine. 2000, or 1994 is when I subscribed. And uh, I've been a subscriber ever since. You want to do the math, that's 20 years. Check them out today, Backwoods Home Magazine. It would be like if, if, if Mother Earth News merged with Countryside Journal and with a libertarian flair. That would be how I would describe Backwoods Home if you know those other magazines. It's pretty awesome. And uh, they were doing it when no one else was doing it. Check them out today, BackwoodsHome.com. Remember, Knife Kits and Backwoods Home both do discounts for members of the Support Brigade. Please consider joining the MSB. If you do that, you'll help support my show at 18.3 cents an episode. And uh, you'll get a lot of cool stuff and a lot of cool discounts. Military, uh, police, uh, and, I'm uh, sorry, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, and prior service. First responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters. All of you qualify for a discount if you email me before, not after you join. Email me at jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com. Put service discount in the subject line. I'll get back to you with how to save some money on that. All right, with that, I want to uh, go to the history segment. The year is 1430. This is episode 1430. I have Joan of Arc abandoned. And say hello to my little friend, Mad Marjorie. Uh, I actually kind of want to read Say Hello to My Little Friend, Mad Marjorie, but, but I think Joan of Arc takes precedence here. Because I think there's a bigger lesson in, in the present for us. So you'll have to go read Say Hello to My Little Friend if you want to at the TSP Wiki in 1430. What happened to Joan of Arc in 1430? Abandonment. Last year, after a fabulous campaign against the English, Joan of Arc reluctantly lays her sword upon the altar at St. Denis Abbey. King Charles VII of France has negotiated a truce, but the English use time to recoup and resupply. Joan is a restless soul, and her amazing success grates on the nobles of the court. Her visions are pushing her to relaunch the campaign, so she sets out as soon as the truce lapses. Her visions say she will be captured before midsummer, as she is leading a sortie to defend Compenja. Uh, her small force is caught outside the city commander. The, when the city commander drops the gate in panic, she is taken prisoner by the forces of Burgundy and sold to the English for what amounts to a few hundred thousand dollars. What happens next is utterly disgraceful. She will go on trial next year for heresy. And if trains and buses existed in 1430, one could say Joan of Arc will be thrown under the bus by the French nobility and railroaded by the English. My take by Alex Drug, who puts these together for us. When reading an account of Joan of Arc's, keep in mind that people who are writing things down do not share the same motivation of a modern reader. It is clear Joan of Arc was interviewed upon her capture, but no one thought it was important to write down what was said. They are not fools, so one wonders why the omission. At her trial, heresy for her heresy, many things will be written down, but the prosecution is playing games with the evidence. It makes the trial of Sacco and Vanzetti in 1921 seem like justice and mercy at best. Joan of Arc is going to burn, despite what anyone might say. She is going to take it like a man better, actually. Um, and it says, if you can't remember who Sacco and Vanzetti were, just remember the slogan, 
The crowd shouted as these two Italian anarchists were put to death for a murder they did not commit. We will not forget. Yeah, right. Okay, um, my take, I think the lesson in modern times is how quickly those in power will just jettison you once your usefulness has been expired, expired or at any time that your rising success makes you a threat to them. I mean, that's what really happened here. The French nobility didn't just like, oh, I can't have this young girl being successful. They're like, well, if people start like paying attention to her, she's a threat to us, and now the English have her, so screw it. You guys deal with her. And the English are like, we don't want her. We've got to get rid of her. She has visions, so she's a witch. Let's burn her. I, I think that what's really screwed up, when you, you, know, you look at this from a legalistic standpoint and you say, Well, you know, they convicted her when she wasn't guilty. Well, what she was accused of, this shouldn't be a crime. Heresy? In other words, you've said things that are untrue about religion. Let's burn you. And you say, well, we don't do that anymore, Jack. Well, when you accuse somebody of something that is immaterial, a thought crime, it's the same thing. And, as, and, it, and maybe we don't burn you at the stake, but as long as we can even, if we don't put you in prison, ruin your life over what we say you think, or combat your points with what we say you think, it's the same thing. It's repackaged and remarketed. So it's like when you say, you know what, maybe we should look at this problem we have with the southern border. Racist! Okay? Right? I think the president's doing a terrible job. Racist! It's the same thing. It's exactly the same thing. You're, you're policing thought. Or, this person's a terrorist. They have connections to terrorist organizations in the Middle East. That's, a, that's the new definition of a terrorist. You have connections to people that we say are terrorists. Well, what connections? We can't tell you for the safety and security of the nation. This type of thought policing is very dangerous. We see it in hate crimes. Very dangerous. So one guy murders one, another person, and they say it's a murder, and they prosecute it as a murder. Another guy murders another guy. Their skin colors don't match. It's a hate crime. It's prosecuted more aggressively. You, in effect, said the value of the first citizen's life is lower than the value of the second citizen's life by policing thought. The policing of heresy in the past was the policing of thought because my belief about your faith does not affect your belief about your faith and it's not a threat to your faith. As long as you actually believe what you say you believe. You really think about that, because it really says a lot about our current society as well. With that, let us take the first call. Oh, no, I'm not taking the first call. I want to just tell you about two things that have come to my attention since my show on virtual nations. A virtual nation that is a thought experiment I called Libertas, which means liberty in Latin. And the reason I liked that is because it's not an English word. It's not a Spanish word. It's a Latin word. All the people that spoke Latin are dead, so therefore the Latin language belongs to the world. That's why I picked that. So somebody sent me a link in the, um, the comments of that show to a place called BitNation, Governance 2.0, uh, and it's bitnation.co, not com, bitnation.co. And what's interesting is when I go to the services link, and if you think about the show, they, they, the first things that they want to provide in place of government or legal services, insurance services, education and social services, security services, and diplomacy, uh, which is almost an exact match. Now, they're doing things a little bit different. I'm not, at this point, 
advocating for these people. I've reached out to them. I want to vet what they're doing because they're doing some kind of an equity sale, a crowd sale uh, that's going to happen in 20 days. But I can't say I'm in or you should be in on this until I talk to somebody there. So until they respond to me, I just know that they exist. But it's encouraging that something so close to what I said exists, exists. I asked Xavier Hawk about it, and he's told me that behind the scenes, what you don't see yet is that permacredits is beyond this. Somebody also sent me a, a, another page that's much, uh, it, it very similar, but not marketing itself as an organi- as a, as a, as a virtual nation, but it would be tools that virtual nations or virtual citizens would use, and it's called Project Douglas. And that's at projectdouglas.org. So if you want to check those two out, you can. I just think it's interesting that as I look more and more, it seems like my crazy idea is actually in bits and pieces being done all over the place by tons of people already. So that's very encouraging. Which solutions will end up being the most viable and usable? The answer is we don't know. We'll have to see. That's what's awesome about the free market, though. Anyway, now go ahead and we'll, uh, we'll take that first call today. Hi, Jack. It's Stuart from Ontario. I'm calling to see what you think about buying neoprene hunting boots with scent containment properties um, for cold weather hunting uh, and function stacking, stacking that by using them for snowy dog walks on my property. My question is, will my scent imprint on the boots and scare off deer? And what you think about all this scent control technology? Is it effective or is it hype? So thank you for making the world better, sir, and uh, keep up the good work. Take care. Bye. My opinion on scent technology in general as a bow hunter is anything you can do to stack the deck in your favor is somewhat useful, but they don't work as advertised. None of them do. There is no such thing as the elimination of your scent, period. And what you need to understand is that animals like deer are not necessarily looking for your scent. They're looking for any scent that doesn't belong there. So anything on your clothing, whether your clothing locks in your scent or not, and it doesn't, and I'll, I'll tell you partly how I know in, in just a minute, um, is still there. Okay, And you're not going to lock in your scent. You can minimize it. In the olden days, before we had all these scent lock technologies, this is what we would do. You take all your hunting clothes and you would wash them with no soap. You would just wash them in, in a washing machine. You might run them through two cycles, and then you would hang them to dry out in the open. And then you would put them into something like a Rubbermaid tub or a garbage bag, and you'd keep them in your vehicle, like in the trunk or the bed of the truck, and you'd actually dress out in the field. And you might throw some um, pine needles and whatever in there to kind of just have a scent that's what you're actually trying to do there. It's not really a cover scent. is you're trying to create a dominance of a scent over the scent you're emanating from your body. And we would use, you know, back then we still, we already had some scents, like some cover scents like fox and things like that, which I've never been a, fa- a fan of. I was always was more of a fan of the deer lures, the things that smell like another deer. And there was a deer lure back then, and if anybody could find, if this stuff exists somewhere, they changed the name of it, it was phenomenal. It was called Dr. O's. And it was really beneficial before the deer were in the rut. The Tink 69 doe and, doe and rut uh, buck lure is the best. It is the best buck lure that there is in planet Earth. Uh, and it actually has a tendency, even with if you're you know willing to take does, it stops them. They kind of investigate it. But it doesn't seem to work except, you know, 
really close to the, you know, really deep into the pre-rut, through the rut, and just early in the post-rut. And other, outside of then, it actually seems like a deer is like, that's not supposed to be here right now. They know that, that does aren't in the cycle. So the deer lures I've always been a bigger fan of. And again, Dr. O's was the, the absolute best uh, it, back in the day, as they say. And what I really liked about it is it was like a gel. So you could put it on like a, a branch or something, and it would stick. So you get it up at the right at the deer scent line. So I've never been huge on the scent lock stuff, but if it's a scent lock technology and it's reasonably priced and it gives you the utility that I needed anyway and the competing product that's not a scent lock product is within 20%, every little bit helps. That That's my overall view. Neoprene in of itself is pretty good at not holding odors. So that's probably always chosen for this scent lock. But your sweaty, stinky feet are sweaty and stinky feet, and you can't seal up your, your, your leg without letting anything out. So even if you're wearing the scent locker boots and scent lock pants and scent lock jacket and all this other stuff, you still have a scent. Okay? And you do. And there's just no way around it. And Mythbusters, when they tested this on tracking dogs, had Adam all dressed up, And all this scent locking stuff, sprayed down with all, you know, did everything they could to uh, to use all these scent lock technologies. And the dog found him every time. No problem. And uh, Jamie said, well, I'm sure it works on deer, but it doesn't work on dogs. I, I'll, I'll tell you what, what a deer can smell, what a dog can smell, a deer can smell. I would actually tell you that I believe that deer probably have better capabilities to scent in the air than dogs do. Uh, if not, they're going to be very close. That is actually very hard to pin down because numbers don't always tell the full story, but we do know how many olfactory receptors that deer and dogs have. Dogs have 220 million olfactory receptors. In other words, the, the components that help them determine where it smells from, what what is the smell, etc., Human beings have 5 million. So you got 5 million, dog gets 220 million. Now you get why they can track you down. Deer have 297 million olfactory uh, receptors, which means that deer, at least in the pure numbers game, are better or as good as dogs. We have to look at it that way. So if a dog can track down somebody completely suited up in this stuff that's taken every level of capability to use it properly, then a deer can too. So it's always been about minimizing scent. So it's not that I'm going to tell you your boots aren't going to work. I'm just going to tell you they're not magic. And I also want you to think about this. Can you smell the boots? Think of, do you see what I'm saying? Is there a scent that you can smell on the boots? Like when you pull a pair of neoprene anything out, is there a smell to it? The answer is I can smell neoprene. It doesn't smell like people. It smells like neoprene. Well, guess what? If I'm a deer in the woods, it's a foreign smell. It has me. It doesn't necessarily have me snorting and putting my tail up and running away, but it has me on alert. So really, as a hunter, when you're dealing especially with trying to get close to deer, it's about the wind and it's about scent lines. And that's partly if you're up in a, in a tree stand, your scent doesn't drop that fast and you're a little less likely to be picked up. And where are you hunting? and how accustomed or unaccustomed are deer to human beings. And you would think that the deer in the very remote areas would be more sensitive to human smell. And actually what you find is there's places where there's so many people around so often 
the deer become somewhat desensitized. Like, they know a person's there, and but there's human smell everywhere all the time. And those deer are not that hard to hunt as far as the scent component goes. And then there's deer that are very, very remote, and they know something's up, but if they're not often pressured by humans, it's just a foreign smell. It's not necessarily bad in of itself to them right away. So if they're not pressured and hunted, they're a little bit easier. It's the deer that live in areas where they routinely see humans, but they're not always there. Because that deer is acutely aware of what that scent means. And those are most of you most of you guys that hunt, like after work and stuff, those are the type of deer you're hunting in that scenario. And so you have to be really mindful of the wind and really mindful of your avenue of approach to your stand. So if you know that deer are coming in and using a certain trail system and you're going to set up an ambush, you need to try to enter not only using the wind to your advantage, but not walking over where they're coming in at. And I can tell you right now, there's no amount of scent lock technology in the world that's going to make you immune to the nose of a deer. If nothing else, a deer will smell something on your body. As far as walking your dog, deer don't like dogs. And the smell that's on the outside certainly can be perceived. So I'm not saying you can't multiple function stack these boots. I'm saying I would go back to our old approach. Wash all your equipment at the beginning of the season and keep it separated from everything else during the season. And if you happen to use it for other things throughout the rest of the year, that's fine. Um, but, you know, don't store your boots in your garage if you and your buddy smoke cigars out there. You know, that's not coming out. That'll be there forever. Anyway, let's go ahead and uh, take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Scott from Southern California. I live in an apartment and... Uh... I just found out recently that my grandparents have 70 acres in Palmdale, California, which is L.A. County, um, and I can get it for a good price, about $500 an acre. There is a well on the property, but do you think that's even worth my time and investment? Let me know. Bye. I don't know. I mean, that's one of those things I can't decide for you. I think you have to look at it this way. If it wasn't your family... And you found out that piece of land was for sale. So 70 acres at 500 an acre is $35,000. That seems to me like a very good price for land in that area. And I, I don't know, though. Is that the desert? Um, I looked this up on Google Maps to get a feeling for what it is. And it seems like it's very desert-ish, but you've got a well there, and it, it, it could be useful. Um I don't know. I see a lot of in the in the area when I go on Google Earth. I see a lot of the circles, which tell me they're doing the circle rotation crop stuff uh, out there. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, the good thing is it may be L.A. County, but there's this giant mountain range between you and L.A. Um, that's that's probably a good thing. Um, but you have to kind of make up your mind for yourself. I don't know what land goes for out there, so. What is a good price? So I don't know what's a good price. Is it a good price because it's fair? Is it a good cri price because it's stupid cheap? Does land in the area like that generally go for $1,000 an acre? And I'd say then maybe you want to consider buying it. If nothing else, because someday when you want to leave California, you can sell it for a profit and, and take it with you. What are the property taxes and the tax implications on it? If it's just basically like ag land or something like that and there's no structures on it or no house 
Um, they're probably, even for California, that's probably pretty low. Uh, where do you live? Do you live in Los Angeles? How far away is this? I mean, these are the things you have to ask yourself. But in the end, what you have to say is if this was for sale, and I didn't know the person that owned it from Adam, would it even be on my radar? Or are you only doing it because it's family-owned land that you want to keep in the family? And that's that's not usually a good reason. That's usually, I'm not saying it's always a bad idea, but if you really don't want the land and you really don't want to do something with it, your future's not really in California, unless it's just a good, profitable decision for your life, then I wouldn't do it. Now, if you actually think, I know California sucks, but I think other places suck too, and I don't think California sucks that bad, and I actually want to stay here, and that land's going to do what you want, and it's a fair, it really is a good price, then you might want to consider doing it. But in the end, you got to, and I'd say this, the reason I play this, this is very specific to one person, and I figured that most people thought I would just, you know, crap all over California, and I, I don't want anything to do with living in California. I really don't. But I understand why people do, and it's one of the most populated states in the country, so it's got some things going for it. But I'm looking at the, the you know, I'm looking at Palmdale, and I see an awful lot of brown, an awful lot of desert, So I, I don't know, man, if, if, if you can go out there any day of the week and find land at that price, I wouldn't do it. If you can go out there any day of the week and find land like that for a grand an acre, I'd probably do it. But I think then there's some reasonable expectation of honesty that I don't know that I'll hold this land for the rest of my life. I'll just buy it from you now. Um. So that someday down the road, if you decide you want to sell it, no other family member wants to buy it. There's not some kind of big butt hurt feelings thing, because even if you double your money on it, it's only thirty five thousand in profit. There's probably other ways to make that money. So you know, make sure if that's your your take that you're you're honest about it. But in any situation, I think it's really important when you're evaluating land or a house or any kind of real property, you have to take the emotional components out of it and make a business decision and that includes when we just drove up to it we just were in love with it you'll learn to love something else if the deal's wrong don't take the deal that's the number one rule in real estate it has to make sense from a numbers perspective let's take another call hi jack this is jake from murfreesboro also known as pepper survivor on zello I've heard you mention in the last couple of weeks, and some of your guests mentioned this term, silvo pasture. I've not heard it before. Maybe you've covered it on one of your earlier shows, but can you give us a definition of what that means, silvo pasture? And there was some other term that, that went along with that, maybe. Anyway, thanks. Appreciate it. Look forward to hearing your answer. I guess sometimes maybe we do use terms and and don't define them fully. Um, Silvo pasture is the process of combining forestry and and pasture grazing with livestock. So it is the strategic planting of trees in a savanna-like pattern, where there's lines and buffers of trees strategically planted out that help with erosion, that actually provide additional shade and protection and shelter for your animals, that provide you know windfall things for animals to graze. Animals can be controlled with fencing until the trees get high enough, and then they actually graze off lower limbs as well. Uh, so it's a very, very effective way to get two things done with the same piece of land without really giving anything up. 
by doing silvopasture properly, you can probably graze as many or more animals and get additional and different types of yields with a more stable environment and happier animals. Anybody that's ever looked out at a field of cattle where it's hot out and there's one great big tree left on the range, so to speak, knows where all the cows are underneath that one tree. And they're manuring that one place and they're grazing the hell out of that one place. You go over there and it's just dusty and dirty underneath there. And, and that land is, and that tree sooner or later is going to end up dead because it's going to be too compacted and over fertilized and it's just, it's going to give up. That's why there's one left. That's what happened to all the other ones. Um, and the cattle are rubbing on it. And if they have hogs, they're rubbing on it. So by bringing trees back into the system, people always think you're giving something up, but you're not giving anything up. So that's silvopasture. As far as the other things that we might have said in conjunction with that, uh, I'm guessing here, but they would probably be, number one would be what's called a riparian buffer. And that is simply planting a tree line or a somewhat tree edge to fields and to prevent erosion from fields or in between fields. So if you had, uh, let's say, uh, uh, 160 acres, right, four 40-acre parcels, you might ring the whole thing with trees and you might do a tree line in between each one. And if there's any places where there's a, a you know a, a moving water uh, along the, the the edge of the creek to prevent erosion into the creek, you might really build it up there. That's a riparian buffer. And the other one we might have talked about is called alley cropping. And a lot of times people think it's ally cropping. It's not ally cropping, which would be polyculturing and getting plants together that support each other. Alley cropping is where we're establishing something, let's say, like a silvo pasture, but our trees are little right now. And we have to pay the bills. So instead of going straight to a pasture model, maybe we take part of this total farm or this total system and we do fence the tree lines and we fence it to keep our animals out or we're paddocking our animals elsewhere. And in that space between the trees, we go in and we put in production crops like tomatoes or potatoes or corn or beans or anything. Or even maybe a perennial production crop like asparagus, which is productive by the second year. And that way, if I'm putting in a tree-based system that I plan to make money on long-term, and I'm going to be putting animals through there and what have you, but I don't have the full property whole on developed yet, or i got to just pay the bills in the interim, I can pay the bills with zucchini and tomatoes. And I can pull out four or $5,000 an acre that way. So if I can put 10 acres into that alley cropping mode during the development, you know, I can put $40,000 to $50,000 in revenue out of the farm and still put animals in different spaces if I'm dealing with a, you know, a 40-acre, 80-acre, 100-acre farm. So those are the three I would, the other two I would guess would be riparian buffer and alley cropping that might have been confusing. But silvopastures is basically a savanna, open canopy, tree and pasture combination and it just makes so much sense. It just makes incredible sense to do it that way. It's better for the animals. It's better for the land. It's better for the landowner. There is no one that doesn't win in that model. And it is, for even for conventional farmers, and I don't want to talk about permaculture and hippies and mud baths and mud fairies and whatever, and I get that. I mean, it is USDA approved, right? This is something that there's grant, federal grant, the farmers that are farming on grants and, and subsidies, there's grants to do this type of thing with your farms. 
So it really does make sense in every measurable way. The trees don't even need to necessarily be what you would think of as productive trees, even for the livestock. It could be done with, with, with black walnut. And a farmer that's going to farm for 30 years at the end of that has an incredible timber yield. You know, it's, it's conceivable that 30 years of black walnut growth on an 80 acre civil pasture, the value of the timber might exceed the value of the land. And a, a person in that situation, if it was managed right, could have overplanted and be selectively harvesting. And at 30 years, you don't just clear cut the whole thing. You can go in there and go, well, we want $50,000 for our retirement this year and sell $50,000 worth of timber. And that's given the land chance to re replenish itself. So you, when you take that, you replant it. So you take it out, you take it out in phases. And that can spread the income out over a retirement. So you use what you need and leave behind what you don't. I mean, it is one of the most brilliant and simple ways to alter agriculture today that's ever been conceived of. Let's take a, uh, another call. By the way, it's also Savannah Mimic, and the Savannah systems are the most productive systems uh, for land in, in the world that have ever been known nature-wise. That nothing out produces for total production a natural savanna. Even a natural rainforest can't compete with a natural savanna. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Sarge from Kentucky. My question is about firearms and ammunition caliber in an apartment setting. Um, I am looking for specifically a uh, handgun recommendation uh, and uh, bullet caliber recommendation that I could use for a home invasion in an apartment that is not going to throw a lot of uh, over-penetration through walls and pass through four or five of my neighbor's apartments uh, if I ever had to use it in a self-defense scenario. I was leaning towards the judge, which is one of my uh, uh, firearms that I have in my arsenal, and the PDX ammo. Uh, but if you had a better idea or thoughts on that, I'd really appreciate it. Uh, thanks for what you do, Jack. Really love the show. Bye. All right, so before I even answer that, I realized as I was queuing that call up that the one thing I didn't tell you in the last segment with the Silvo pasture is why the hell they call it that. Uh, it's Latin, kind of like Libertas, right? So Silva in Latin means forest. So it means forest pasture. I guess I could have just said that, and that would have been the whole answer. Anyway, so this one here, I have bad news for those thinking this way. It doesn't exist. And if you look up boxoftruth.com, you can see all the testing that's been done over there on anything that's actually going to be really effective at making a bad guy dead will penetrate drywall and penetrate lots of it. It doesn't exist. There's been, well, ARs are actually better because the bullet is so frangible. And it doesn't, it tumbles through Some of the rounds they've tried that are frangible rounds, uh, they, they do at least break up, but they still penetrate. They're still dangerous on the other side of the wall. If it's capable of hitting a grown man and anchoring him and doing its job, it goes through walls. About the only option you have that doesn't really heavily over-penetrate walls is not generally considered the best idea for home defense, and it's a shotgun with birdshot. So I'm like number six. Now, I personally believe it's more effective than we've been led to believe. 
I think if somebody hits you in the chest with an ounce and a quarter of six shot at ten yards or less, and let's face it, in most houses and apartments, you're looking at at, at, at the maximum distance you could possibly create where you got a line of sight shot of ten yards. I think you end up with a bad guy in really, really, really bad shape, especially if he gets hit in the face and the throat. Um, does it have the ability that Buckshot does? No. But Buckshot goes right through walls, straight, especially apartment-style walls. Or the walls in your, if you're a house dweller, it's not like this doesn't affect you because, you know, the person you care about may be in the other room. So how do we deal with this? Well, you know, one thing we can do is we can use hollow point rounds in our handguns that are designed to expand, to dump their energy, and not really to over-penetrate the human body. And then don't miss. And if you think I'm being facetious, I'm not. Um, you have to weigh all the probabilities. So what is the probability that somebody's going to break in your home and mandate the use of lethal force. And the probability is actually relatively low, but if it happens, what is the probability that that person represents a clear and present danger to you and or your family if you're not armed? And that probability is very high. So not being armed or being armed, I'm going to be armed. Okay, But I already know the likelihood that I'm ever in my life going to fire a shot in anger is relatively low. Now... The next thing is, in that situation where I do have to shoot the guy, right? what is the probability that I'm going to miss at, at 7 to 10 yards when I take that shot? And if I know what the hell I'm doing, the odds are pretty low. Okay? What's the next thing? Now, what are the odds that I'm going to just, you know, empty a magazine of 18 rounds or something like that, like I'm shooting an Uzi. Well, hopefully zero, because I'm not an idiot. So most conflicts like this involve one to four shots. Okay? And if there's more than one, it's often the case that the other guy's shooting back at you. So we already know you can't worry about where his rounds are going other than you don't want them going in you. So any danger that that your assailant's action plays to the people around you isn't that you don't care. It's just not in your control. So all you control is yourself. So what you have to have is good common sense rules of engagement and proficiency with your weapon and put the round in the person. And if the bullet goes through a human being and comes out the other side, it has slowed down and deformed a lot, especially if you're using a good expanding round. It's, it's weird, but a lot of times if you shoot a hollow point through something like drywall or wood, instead of expanding the way it does when it impacts flesh and bone, the hollow point just sort of caves in on itself, and it becomes almost like a solid, and it just bores through unless it's frangible enough that it actually destroys itself or fragments itself. But going through Box of Truth, which is the, and I'll put a link to it today, which is, the, you know, these are just regular guys. They're not super ballisticians or anything like that. But they take the weapons, they set up the, the material, and they shoot, and they say, here's what happened. And it's just been pretty obvious that almost everything that would be effective 
when it comes to drywall, it doesn't stop it. And you got to think about drywall. I can walk up to a piece of drywall with a long screwdriver and just go, plump, and I can just push it right through it. And I can use a dull screwdriver that if I, if I push the same against your stomach, it'd hurt and you'd be pissed at me, but it ain't going to go through. So <laughs> it's, it's simply the case that drywall is less equipped to stop something like a round of ammunition than a human body is. So you're asking something that will penetrate and put down a human, but not penetrate and put down drywall. It just doesn't exist. So you again, that's where you're at. So then you have to either say, I'm willing to take the risk to have the best threat stopper that there is in a home invasion, which is a firearm, or I'm going to go to a non-lethal. And non-lethals have problems. Pepper spray is a great non-lethal alternative for self-defense when the guy coming at you doesn't have a knife or a gun. If he has a knife or a gun, you shoot him. He's a threat to your life, not just your physical safety. You shoot him. And any good instructor will tell you the same. And if he's got a knife, he might be more dangerous to you, especially at certain distances, than a gun, if he knows what he's doing. So... It's not, it's, if that's all you have, that's all you have. And if I was going to go with pepper spray as my home defense, I wouldn't have one of the little bitty keychain ones. Those are fine for carrying around, getting rid of stray dogs. But I'd have a great big old dog to bounty hunter, you know, can of wasp spray size can. Don't use wasp spray, by the way. I won't even get into it today. It's a dumb idea. You could end up in a lawsuit sued by the person you sprayed for the violation of federal law. Now, if it's all that happens to be there, fine. But if you say, well, I keep this for this type of thing, it's bad. Read the back of the can. So pepper spray has an inherent weakness that I can still stab you, kill you, beat you, all kinds of things. It is designed mainly to, to create the opportunity to escape or to stop a person. Stun guns are inefficient at putting a person down. Tasers generally put a person down flat on their ass. And that's fine if it's one. If you have multiple attackers, you have a problem. You're tasing his buddy, he's using the taser to club you over the head. So the, the problem, and this is when people say, well, you don't need a gun for home defense. There isn't really anything that's as an effective home defense tool is a handgun and a properly trained operator of that handgun. And you say, well, a shotgun, Jack, nah. It's just the facts that in most home invasion scenarios and the way they take place in the close quarters that a handgun is generally the best tool for the job. I'm not saying you can't grab the AR. I'm not saying you can't grab the shotgun. I'm not saying if a person that's breaking in that's not in an imminent point of trying to shoot you sees the barrel of a 12 or 20 gauge at their face that it's not incredibly intimidating. And it may not lead to immediate compliance, but I'm saying if you're moving through a house with a person in there that means you harm, that it's easier to keep control of a handgun than it is a long gun. And it is easier for someone to physically take a long gun away from you than it is a handgun. Much easier. And I have the bruises on my back from Valerie Asinoff to prove it. There's occasional times where I can keep my distance from that guy and, and get a shot off with an airsoft handgun. Hitting them, that's another thing. <laughs> but a shotgun, if you're anywhere close, it's out of your hands if the guy knows what he's really doing. And you're probably laying on top of it on the ground. Um, 
So just say that. Anyway, that's my opinion. You're not going to get anything that's going to be an effective man stopper. It doesn't go through drywall. It doesn't exist. So you have to be sure of your target, and you have to have good rules of engagement. And in the end, the only time you should be discharging that weapon is because you believe your life is in danger. And you should be doing the best job you can with it. And collateral damage, if it's, un it's not just like, oh, we accept that that's going to happen. Sometimes it happens. But it's very rare. Let me tell you this, just to, to make this point about how unlikely it is. If one time somebody broke into a guy's house, the guy shot at him and missed, the bullet went through the wall, hit an innocent person on the other side and killed him, it would be nonstop 24-7 news at how dangerous guns are. I'm not saying it's never happened. I'm saying it doesn't happen enough because it would be on every gun control website It would be pictures, and they'd be naming laws after the person that was shot, and all kinds of crap. So it, it doesn't happen, at least very often. And if somebody had ever shot the bad guy, gone through the bad guy, gone through the wall, and killed somebody else, you'd have really heard about that just because it's sensational news for a sensational news culture. All right, So I say buy what, you, what works for you. And use good ammunition. Don't use, you know, don't use full metal jackets. That's just that's asking for it. And uh, and do the best you can with good rules of engagement and training. Let's take another one. Hey Jack, John in West Virginia. Uh, I am looking for a natural gas conversion for my generator. Uh, any suggestions, websites, or what I need to do? All right, appreciate it, man. All right, so uh, I heard that one and thought, well, we've covered that before, and who have we covered it with? Expert council member Stephen Harris. I figured he might have a few words of advice for our buddy John in West Virginia. Steve, what say you, sir? John in West Virginia. This is Steve Harris with the expert panel calling in to answer your question. Well, the easy answer, John, is to go to propanecarbs.com, P-R-O-P-A-N-E-C-A-R-B-S.com. They have conversion kits for propane and natural gas for almost every generator you could think of and almost every configuration. Once you do the conversion, you'll be able to run on all three fuels. You'll be able to run on gasoline, you'll be able to run on propane, and you'll be, run, be able to run off of natural gas. I do not suggest you run off of propane unless you've got a big propane pig outside. Don't think that your little barbecue propane cylinder is a lightsaber full of energy because it's not. You're better off storing and using gasoline than you are using propane out of barbecue cylinders. Got a 500-gallon pig outside? That's a different story. Hook up to it. As I said, they have conversion kits for all generators. Uh, it'll still run gasoline, and the uh, only thing is you, you put a shutoff valve in there for the gasoline. I think that's supplied in their kits. So right now, they are telephone orders only, so you have to call them. Uh, they did have web orders up, but they took it down because too many people bought the wrong things for their generator and everything else. So now you got to call them up, consult with them, and they will send you exactly what you need for your generator. I found them very friendly and very helpful on the telephone, and I am trying to get them to give us an MSB discount for 
any of their kits, but as of this moment, they can't do it. The lady who would approve it is on vacation. So look for that in the MSB area in the future. In the meantime, just go get it from them. Now, there they have a tremendous number. Oh, also, they have a tremendous number of videos on how to install the propane and natural gas kits. Uh, they have tremendous number of photos and step-by-step installs on their websites. So you can go there and look, and you can see uh, how to install, watch the videos, and you'll probably say to yourself, I can do this, okay? It's not something very hard. You have to take off the cover off the generator. You have to unscrew the air intake. You have to... Uh, then you put on their venturi between the carburetor and the air intake and run the, the hose to a what's called a demand regulator. That goes to your natural gas or your, or your propane source. Now, the difference between natural gas and propane is propane is 2,500 BTUs per cubic foot. Natural gas is only 1,000 BTUs per cubic foot. So in, uh, when you're running on natural gas, you'll have to... Uh, have one of the screw openings a lot open a lot wider to let a lot more gas in than you would with propane. When you get propane, you just screw it down a little bit. It, trust me, it's no big deal. It's easy to do. It's easy to tell when the generator is starving for fuel. You, you'll hear it, and you just go open up the uh, screw a little bit, let more gas in, and away she goes. Uh, their kits is the only one on the market. They are the only people on the market with a kit that does not require the drilling of a hole in the carburetor. All the previous kits I have used and I have installed myself, I had to have the carburetor drilled out. This one, they do. there is no carburetor drilling. As I said, they have a Venturi that fits on the front of the carb, and it works just great. Now, I don't want to repeat myself. There is a lot of stuff I can tell you. I need to tell you about running natural gas to your generator, whether you do it with a plumber and with pipe, or you do it some one of the ways I show you with a barb fitting off the bottom of your hot water heater, and then you run an airline out to your generator. Yes, you can run natural gas through an airline, okay? Don't give me any crap about that. Natural gas molecules many times bigger than the oxygen and nitrogen molecules, so it works great. Um, if you want to know every single way of hooking up natural gas or propane to your generator and every single way of hooking up your generator to your house, both the illegal ways, the legal ways to code, I cover the safe ways and the unsafe ways. I'm not going to repeat myself, as I said. I already did a tremendous show on this with Jack. Go to solar1234.com and listen to generator show number two. That's number two. Number one is on selecting a generator. Number two is on natural gas, propane, and hooking up to the house. So I said I do this in explicit. Also, I do this in explicit detail. You'll be nothing left in your mind on one way to do it or not. Uh, also on solar1234.com, I have photographs of the different ways that I have tapped into natural gas in my different houses and run to the generator for an emergency. So you can actually see the parts list from Home Depot. I give you the receipt with the part numbers on it and everything. Mine would be qualified as an unsafe way, but I don't have children to worry about pulling hoses off of the natural gas line. 
Yes, I have a tri-fuel generator. I have done everything I'm talking about here in detail and in much more, and I've done everything that you've heard about in Generator Show number two. This is Steve Harris for the expert panel. For those new people who want to hear all of the previous stuff I have done with Jack on energy and even more, just go to Stephen. 1234.com. That's Stephen1234.com. And it will list all of my different 1234 websites with all of my different classes and all the Harris approved items on it. Thank you very much, guys. I will talk to you next week. I got more questions for you. To, I got more questions to answer for you. Thank you. Hello, Jack. This is uh, Sakota from Ardenmore, Washington. And I am calling to see if you can cover the subject of iodized salts. I've recently read some information that states that iodine, of course, is a necessary nutrient, and it was put into salt uh, as a, a delivery method to, to get us a little more iodine in our diet. Um, with the introduction of, of sea salt, of course, and, and Himalayan pink and, and uh, all these other table salts that have become really popular over the last few years, uh, I'm just wondering if, if iodized salt is a bad thing or if we should be consuming it. Thank you for everything you do, and have a great day. Bye-bye. Okay, so I don't think, I don't feel that when you buy conventional ionized table salt, you're buying the healthiest form of salt you can. I don't think it has anything to do with the fact there's iodine in it. Uh, I don't think that it's a bad thing to have a little bit of extra iodine in your diet. That's, that's not the issue. And I'll also say that I think on a, a scale of how important it is that you do or do not consume something, um, <laughs> worrying about the quality of your salt is not unimportant, but it's pretty low, right? There's a lot of other things I'd worry about correcting in a human diet before I'd worry about, let's, let's go to sea salt or Himalayan pink salt or what have you. But there is some things to that, and part of that is that Let's forget about the iodine for a second. Let's just say, how do we make salt uh, right now? Table salt, whether it's it's done with iodine or not, is taken from natural earth salts, and then it's refined till there's nothing left but 100% sodium chloride. And then about 2.5% of a solution of chemicals that are really moisture absorbents to keep it from caking, any caking agents, and possibly iodine, whether you're buying iodine or non-iodized salt, is added back to it. Because every mineral, every component of it other than the sodium chloride is removed. Natural salt has, uh, I believe it's somewhere in the neighborhood... Of, of something, I'm trying to think now, 80, it's something over 80, like 80, 84, 85, somewhere like 84 sticking in my brain, but there's 84 elements, I think, uh, that are in salt that are also found in you, if it's natural salt. Now, the truth is, these are trace elements in salts. All salt is mostly sodium chloride. These other elements are in teeny tiny trace amounts, but they're there, and they've been purified out, and then that salt... That white salt that you get from the store is cooked at 1,200 degrees, and it alters the, the, the chemical structure of the salt somewhat. And so it's not natural. Again, it, would you take a sick person eating regular salt and put them on Himalayan salt or sea salt and have them get better? No. 
No, but it's one more little thing. And to me, natural salt has a better flavor quality. It's actually, a, you end up feeling like, yeah, I use a little more of this. It's not quite as salty. And that's probably because there's a little bit of other stuff in there. Um, but I've gone to all the pink salt, or I'll sometimes I'll use kosher salt, and which is still a refined salt product, uh, but refined under, under those standards, or uh, a natural sea salt. Now, here's another thing. All salt kind of sort of really is sea salt. That's how it got there in the first place, even though there's not sea there anymore. Um, it's, it's not something I'd freak out over, but, again, I just lean toward natural products. They don't cost that much more, you know? Okay, now, and the other thing is, well, how do you keep your salt from caking together in your salt shaker? If you get, you know, ground up pink salt, uh, instead of putting it in a salt grinder, which that's the easy answer, put it in a salt grinder. But if you want it already ground and you want to be able to shake it and you don't want it to cake up, throw a couple pieces of rice in your salt shaker that are, you know, rice won't fit through the hole of a salt shaker, but it'll keep the salt dry. It's, it's that simple. It's a good use for rice. Um, iodine. They started putting iodine in, in salt uh, about 100 years ago when there was pretty much an epidemic of something called goiter throughout the United States. And this had a lot to do with the fact that we had really just started in, in earnest with modern agriculture demineralizing the hell out of our soils. Because iodine is a lot of things that you would normally eat. And this is where your neck swells up like one of them weird birds on a Discovery Channel. You're Your, your thyroid gland expands, and it looks horrible. And we don't see a lot of it anymore. And, and, and part of that is because, you know, occasionally the Food and Drug Administration gets something right, the government gets something right. The supplementation of iodine and salt that most people use is part of it, but yet I don't use freaking any iodized salt at all in our home, and I'm not running around with a goiter. So what's the deal? Well, there's a lot of sources of iodine, and if you're eating them, you probably don't need supplemented. Cheeses often have some iodine in them. Um, most milk and egg products have some iodine in them. Strawberries are a good source. So those are all ways that we get iodine. Yogurt, anything that's a, a, a dairy product, especially an organic or natural dairy product. So that's where a lot of it comes from. Now, ironically, if we don't strip the salt of everything, we don't have to put iodine back into it because uh, salts like Himalayan salt have trace amounts of iodine as well. Uh, organic potatoes, uh, navy beans. There are a lot of ways that you can get iodine in your diet. So if you're eating a diet like that, and if you're using Himalayan salt, you may not get as much as is supplemented into normal table salt, but you get plenty. Now, the other thing that really killed off the goiter thing is as people started eating more and more processed foods, what's every processed food manufacturer dumping into their food? Well, they're dumping in salt, and most of them are going to use iodized salt. So there you go. And then the other thing is they started actually putting iodine into a lot of the flours that they used to make bread products and things like that. So it's something that was done by the food industry and the government that actually helped. Didn't help. Now they created the problem that they sort of kind of treated. You know, they really did as a symptomatic response. They created the problem in the first place because you didn't have people running around with goiter before we demineralized our soil and, and, and changed our diets. But you know, it's there. The the number one natural source of iodine is sea vegetables like kelp. 
So if you were to use a little bit of kelp meal in your, your diet or as a supplement, um, or if you like sushi and you're using a, a seaweed wrap type situation, uh, it's, it, it's way more than enough. So, and the other thing to remember is you don't need that much iodine. You need a little tiny, tiny bit. So if you don't show any symptoms or signs that there's any kind of problem with your iodine levels, I just wouldn't worry about it. And I would stick to natural salts. Again, it's not like, oh, you ate table salt, you're going to die tomorrow. I just think that it's such a simple thing where you give up nothing and pay so much little of a premium. It's one of those places, why not do it? Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Bob from Eastern PA. I'm looking for some guidance on uh, self-defense, concealed carry, EDC stuff. Um, here's what prompted my question. I live in the suburbs on houses about a, a third or a quarter of an acre lots. Um, I was walking my daughter one block to the school bus stop last week, and my neighbor had his German Shepherd out, which is very unusual. It's usually an in, in-the-house in kind of dog. Dog's older and fat, but he was off-leash, and he charged two-thirds of the way of the distance between the owner and my daughter and I. You know, that old head down, barking, growling, acting aggressive. So I pushed my daughter behind me and we stood still. If I moved, the dog moved. And the owner's kind of old and, you know, he was moving forward with his cane to try and gain control. So there we stood. It was the morning and I was off work that day and I had all my EDC stuff with me. You know, the tool things, the keys, the wallet, handkerchief, little knife, etc. Uh, I was ridiculously, stupidly unarmed at the time. I'd done this uh, walk to the bus stop, I don't know, a thousand times without incident, and I just, they're there. I just didn't pick up anything on the way out of the house, no weapon of any kind. So I stood there staring at the darn dog with my little girl behind me, and I realized what a mistake I'd made. I would have given a, a, a darn lot for 18 inches of a broomstick candle with a wrist lanyard on it at the time. So here's my question. How, what do I do to fix this? I have an obvious gap. I'm a concealed carry permit holder, but I can't carry at work. So it, <laughs> it, it makes it hard to get into the habit of, of doing it because you, you, you miss the feel of something being there. Do I add like a strong folding knife to my EDC, pepper spray? Uh, not sure where to go with this, Jack, but the, the question is really the same if it's one, one old fat dog or a bunch of guys, or a bunch of guys with dogs. You know, same, same thing. You want to throw this to Brian Black? That's awesome. Otherwise, I would sure uh, sure appreciate hearing what you have uh, have to say about this. My best to you and your family. Thanks, Jack. Well, let's start out with a knife idea. As a defensive weapon, without quite a bit of training, a knife is a very poor choice as a defensive weapon, especially in, in a street violence situation. The most effective use of a knife is through the concealed and what you would call dirty fighting use of a knife. Now, pulling a knife out on somebody in a conflict, if that person is going to make a case that they weren't actually your assailant, is a great justification for them to pull a gun out and shoot you. As soon as you have that knife visible, you have actually created a situation where you've become a lethal threat. I'm not saying if I was in a situation with a couple guys that I thought could take me without any use of a weapon, I might not try that brandishing 
but I probably wouldn't. I, from my knowledge of how to use a knife, I would probably they'd probably not know there was a knife there until they chose to engage in the conflict that I had tried to defuse. And that takes a certain mindset, and it takes a certain amount of training. And I really think that, in general, a knife's not a great defensive weapon. Even with training against a dog, really, I mean, if I have two things to pick from and one is nothing and the other is a knife, I'll take the knife. But a dog is extremely dangerous if it's really attacking you and you have to put yourself into danger to use the knife. Now, if you've got what amounts to a short sword, maybe you've got some. The best thing to have had in that situation, honestly, um, if you didn't have a gun, would have been something like a baseball bat. Um, you give anything a blow with a Louisville slugger to the head, it slows it the hell down. Pepper spray will work on dogs. I've done it once. I didn't really hit the dog hard with it. We had a dog that was on the ground, very, very threatening, nose to the ground in that position where you know they're thinking about doing it. And I had a 9mm on me, and I had pepper spray in my left hand, and I squirted the pepper spray about a quarter inch in front of the dog's nose and hit the ground with it. Just one tiny pop, and she just back, she's like, oh, hell no. She wanted nothing to do with it. And you think about, we talked about earlier about how many olfactory senses are in a dog. But if that dog went into attack mode, spraying that dog wouldn't have stopped it. Spraying the dog interrupted this preempt. It was a preemptive step that allowed me to go and tell the guy that owned the dog, dude, you need to control your dog. And I sprayed your dog with a little bit of pepper spray, and she was going to attack me and my wife instead of coming up to his door holding his dog in my arms and going, dude, here's your dog with six holes in it. And trust me, if she had jumped at me, pepper spray or not, that dog was going to get lit up. But had I had a big old bat in my hand, I promise you, in most situations, a dog can be fought off quite well with a baseball bat. Now, some of these really aggressive, really dangerous dogs, you've got to shoot them. I mean, it's about the only, or I guess if you had a taser. But again, the thing with it, whenever you look at a handgun, is a defensive tool, and you compare it to everything else. Nothing else is as dependable and as effective as a handgun. That's why so many people in this day and age still want to carry one. Not so they can knock over a convenience store, because nothing really does what a handgun does. Not yet, anyway. Not this available to civilians. I'm sure they got something. I'm sure they got some kind of multiple taser product that the taser's a bullet, a projectile like it's not connected back to the handle, that's individually controllable or something. I, I don't know, but we don't have access to that. And it would probably be extremely expensive. It's still probably not as effective. So the best thing would be to be armed. Now, I still think having, like, okay, so that walk, now you got two problems here. You walk your daughter to the bus station. But if your daughter's outside at all, that dog's a problem. So that has to be addressed separately. The fact that those kind of problems can pop up, I mean, I would personally, because I don't want to shoot my weapon in public at all, ever. Okay, that's the thing. I don't want to ever draw my weapon in anger and shoot anything ever, period, unless I'm hunting and eating deer after I'm done firing the shot. I, I say it one more time, because so this is what people don't get in their head. This has to be your mentality. I don't want to ever draw and fire my weapon, ever. Okay, I want to avoid it unless there is no other alternative. And and that's that's how you... Now, that doesn't mean I'm not willing to do it. 
And I'm willing to do it in a fraction of a second if the situation is such that I need to. So I would, from this point forward, be carrying a big old can of pepper spray. I'm, again, on dog bounty hunter size, you know, coated pepper spray or a bat with me down the road. Um, or maybe a really good walking, cold steel walking stick. And I'd keep that sucker, the bat or the stick, right at the front door where I can't not see it when I leave the door. That's going to tell me to grab that thing. I, but but that, that's just to avoid shooting a dog. I would, whatever procedure you need to do to make sure that you're armed when you're outside of, when you're inside or outside of your home, do it. I don't care if you have to tattoo it on your forehead and see it in the mirror in the morning. Whatever you got to do, that's why you went through the process to become a, a holder so that you could carry. Now, can't carry at work. I have a question for you. Is there anything that prevents you from storing your gun in your vehicle in the parking lot? In some instances, the answer is yes. In some instances, the answer is no. Now, There's also a couple things to see here. There's what's called a company policy and the law. Okay? So it might be company policy that employees are not permitted to have firearms in their, in their cars in our parking lot. Do they have it posted as such in accordance with the law of your state? If they do not, the law does not apply. Their policy does. Now, if you're stupid, you go into HR and go, I have a right to have a gun and I'm keeping it in my car and there's nothing you can do about it. Here's your walking papers. Goodbye. But if you're not in a situation where you're going through a security gate to park your car or something like that, and if they do not have the lot posted in accordance with the law of your state, the company policy applies to you, but the law does not. So it would be very reasonable that you might get a secure lockbox under the seat lockbox style situation for your vehicle and be armed at all times, and either before you get there, Or, or, or when you get there, depending on your situation, stow your gun in that lockbox. Would I prefer that it's on your body? Hell yes. I don't want you to lose your job. Okay. They would have to know that you're doing this, which unless you tell them they should not, in order for it to apply to you. And if you ever got into a situation where there was a violence occurring in your parking lot, I'd lose my job and sue the shit out of them after I did so before I'd let somebody get hurt or myself get hurt. And in the interim, you're unarmed. But that way, the only time you have to disarm is when you go in. Most concealed carry holders come up with some sort of a solution like this anyway. Because sooner or later, you walk up to a place that says you can't go in armed. And you say, well, I'm not going to eat Panera Bread. Well, that's fine. But it could be because you're going downtown to file some paperwork with a state agency that not only says you can't carry, but has a metal detector there, and you got to take care of business, okay? Or you go to get gas. You don't use your card for whatever reason. You, you pay at the pump, and then you get to the front door, and they have the proper signage that says you as a licensed carrier can't carry. Well, you've done put the gas in your car. you got to pay for it. Sooner or later, one way or another, you end up in a situation where you have to decide whether to commit a felony or not. And strikingly people that have concealed carry permits are generally law-abiding citizens that would prefer not to have a freaking felony on their record and go to prison. So they comply. So some sort of a lockable storage in vehicle is something you need to have anyway as a concealed carry holder. 
So that would be my, my best suggestion is that you carry, you lock your, 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 your gun in your vehicle at work, and you rearm after you leave. And I would go so far as to say is if that presents a danger of being detected, that you take that lockable storage, and in the mornings, you, you, if it's in your own driveway, I'd say stop somewhere on the way to work that it's safe to do, and move the weapon into your storage box. There's no reason anybody should be looking at that if you work certain jobs where things are subject to search and shit like that, and they've got security doing it, then you got to figure something else out. But most people that say, I can't carry at work, they park their car in a parking lot that anybody from the dadgone public can just pull up in and park. Or anybody with a sticker for the company can just pull up in there and park. There's no gate. There's the lax parking enforcement. Maybe people have assigned parking and they pay extra for under a cover and they, they write a, a ticket, if you want to call it that, to people that use somebody else's spot or something, but it's like apartment parking or something. It's, it's not really enforceable unless you're dumb enough to tell them. So don't tell them. I mean, that's something we as citizens have to start learning about a lot of things that you're told you can't do. Well, how enforceable is this, is this, this dictate that I can't do it? If it's not enforceable, I may not comply, but I'm not going to be stupid enough to tell you I failed to comply. I'm just not going to comply. And again, I don't give a damn where I am. I don't give a damn who said I couldn't carry a weapon. If I have a choice between saving a life, whether it's my own or someone else's or not, I'll deal with the consequences later. Because when it comes down to saving a life, it comes down to saving a life. Anyway, let's go ahead and take another one. Hey, Jack, this is Low Lot Living. My question is, when I grow my own rootstock and then uh, put scion wood onto that, now, does the, the tree think that it's the age of the scion wood, or is it, does, it, does it think that it's the age of the rootstock? So that, that was my question. Uh, I have a few apple trees that I'm going to be... Uh, making rootstock out of, and I didn't know if if uh, if they're a year old, if the tree would think it's a year old, or if I graft a 12-year-old tree, cyan wood tree onto that, if it would think it's 12 years old. I don't know. Anyway, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Bye. Well, you know, I had an answer to that question, but I thought I know who will have a better answer to that question, and that would be the guy that I know that knows the most about plant propagation in the world, Nick Ferguson. And I've actually decided that I was kind of a dummy and not adding him to the council, so I don't know that he'll show up in the list today because i got a lot of things to do today. Uh, but I am officially announcing today, at least on air, that Nicholas Ferguson of Permaculture Classroom and uh, one of my partners in Perma Ethos is now on the expert council specifically to answer questions about plant propagation and plant care. Uh, and everything from annuals to perennials and anything else you can think of there, Nick really knows what he's doing. This guy's been in horticulture a very long time and uh, just an amazing guy. And uh, with that, I asked him if he'd answer this question. He's got one for you. Hey, Nick, man, what say you? Hey there, Low Watt Living. You asked if the cyan wood will behave as if it is old or new. The short answer is that it will behave as if it is going into its second year. You'll be harvesting cyan wood late winter for grafting in the spring. The only wood you'll be harvesting will be last year's new growth. So that's wood that started growing last spring. 
and went dormant this year. You will not be taking cyanwood that is six years old. It does not matter how old the tree is that you are harvesting cyanwood from. It will be last year's growth. So there are three main limiting factors. The graft, is it healed enough to produce fruit? Second, is the rootstock mature enough to supply the cyanwood with the necessary building blocks for fruit? And third, is the fruiting spur on your cyanwood at least two years old? Generally, apples will produce on fruiting spurs that are two to three years old and keep producing on that branch for about six to ten years. I hope this answered your question. Let me know if you need any follow-up information or clarification. To learn more about me and what I do, head over to permacultureclassroom.com. Thanks, Jack, for letting me answer this question. And uh, to all the TSB listeners, happy growing. Well, great answer there from Nick, uh, which is all I would expect and more, and quick and concise to the point. I do want to say something before I give him too big of a head. I realized that the way I introduced that uh, answer, it, it might have sounded like I said, Nick knows more about plant propagation than anybody in the world. That's that's not what I meant. Nick's is really switched on guy. What I meant was, of all the people I know in the world, he's the one that I know that knows the most about plant propagation. Um, and, and it really wouldn't give him a big head. He would be like, dude, don't say that about me. He's a very, very nice guy, a very humble guy. And uh, so that's a great answer. Let's go ahead and take another question. Hey, Jack. This is uh, Matt in... Wilsonville, Alabama. I actually just have a comment on modern society. I just experience this every day. Uh, among other things, I drive a school bus, and every morning I have a child that I pick up whose mother is literally holding them back uh, to keep them from running in the streets. Uh, and the little brother as well. She's got a child that is, I think, 10 years old, and a uh, little brother that's four. She's kind of holding the four-year-old back, but uh, in the same way, she's holding the ten-year-old child back, keeping him, I guess, from running in front of traffic. And um, anyway, it's really interesting uh, to see parents not teaching their child basic things like staying out of traffic. Enjoy the show. Thanks, Jack. I think that speaks to a bigger problem. Uh, don't you guys out there think so? I mean, what you have is a 10-year-old. A 10-year-old should have enough self-control to not run out in the middle of the street and be run over by a car. Uh, I can't say I've never heard of a kid that's 10 years old being hit by a car when I was a kid. It, it did happen, but it didn't happen for that reason. That is the behavior you expect from a 3- or 4-year-old. That's why you have to be really careful with children that young. It is not the behavior you expect from a 10-year-old. And you say, well, maybe this kid just has a problem. Maybe. Okay? Maybe. And maybe the mother's doing the only thing she can to keep her kid from getting killed. And if so, that's noble. But I just don't think so. I just don't think so. Because how does this kid go through a day of school without killing himself then? You know, I just... Here's here's what I think this is a, a bigger statement on. We have gone from a point where we teach children to behave safely to a point where we provide safety for children. Got it? This is why we have stupid shit going on where we have somebody calling CPS because a lady let her kid play 150 yards away from the front door of her house, which really happened here in Texas. People need their freaking head examined. And the mother's told at the end, well, you did nothing wrong. And she says, what do I do now? And the CPS agent says, just don't let your kid play outside. 
This is why we've, we've lost our minds. But why do we have parents in league with this? Why do we have people in general? The, I'm telling you right now, you don't think it's true. The majority of people in America believe that's what it should be done. Instead of teaching children to be safe in their behavior, to provide safety for the children. Because it's what your government's done to you. Hello. Okay? We are mimicking the behavior of our government as a society now. Government has stopped telling people with guidance Be good citizens, look out for your fellow citizens, and be safe. And here are ways to be a good citizen, which was the old form of even a totalitarian government. At least it was that much. Now it is, we shall provide your security. We shall provide your safety. We shall dictate that's what you shall not do to risk anything. And instead of looking out for your fellow citizen, narc out your fellow citizen. This is the society we live in today. And the shit's got to stop. It really has to. And it's it's not everywhere. Those of you that live in rural America, you don't understand the words coming out of my mouth right now. You're like, this can't possibly be the way that people are. But yet it is. And you see extreme stupidity of parents in risking the safety of their children, and yet extreme compulsion from the same parent to protect children from that which is not dangerous. When my son was playing uh, softball, this is what his work, so this is after school, so uh, you know, he's probably 19, 20 years old back at this time. He's 25 now. God, that's amazing. Um, but he was in college, and he was he was also working, and he was he was playing softball with his, with a work league, and they were playing like a mile from our house, so we would walk up there and hang out and watch them play and stuff, and um, some of their friends would come, and they're all near a 20-something crowd, and there was this girl. She had a kid, and it was baby. And she was real compulsive about kids running around like, oh, they shouldn't be doing that. Oh, they shouldn't be doing that. She's got her baby in a freaking like bassinet multi-purpose car seat thing sitting on a bleacher six feet in the freaking air, not down like where the feet go at the back of the – she's sitting at the top of the bleachers. She's got her baby sitting on the bleacher to her side and acting like it's her purse. Where it takes one person to knock it, his baby's going to fall six feet to the ground. Well, she's worried about, those kids are playing over there alone. And I'm looking at my wife going, Jack, shut up. I want to go, what's wrong with you, you brain-dead, mind-numbingly stupid imbecile with your child? It's like two months old. They probably shouldn't even be here six feet in the air on the edge of a ledge. See, this is what happens when you get into this mode You behave stupidly in both directions, overcompensating for things that aren't dangerous and allowing dangerous things to happen. And then when dangerous things happen, go, damn government shouldn't let that happen. Oh, let's, I don't know, make bleachers with a, a thing that locks down so that your baby doesn't fall off them or something. Yeah, let's, let's do that. Maybe Halliburton could install them under a government contract. <laughs> This is where we are. And it's, it's, it's really sad. And the objection that I hear even from the, the person that's usually got a brain is, but there's so many sick people out there. If that kid could just get snatched up and disappear, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Let's talk about some reality. Uh, of all of the, the kidnappings of, of children, 49% are by family members or an acquaintance of the victim uh, is 27%. So most children that are taken are taken by family members or someone they know. 
they, that, that leaves 24% that they say are taken by strangers, but that includes all the kids that disappear, including the ones that are never found in cases that are never solved. Now, if the knowns are slanted to be 76%, 76% of the time a kid is abducted or taken, that that child is taken by somebody the child either knew or a family member, it's reasonable that a significant portion of the unsolves, the child was taken by someone that they also knew and we just don't know it. So the stranger danger talk that you have with kids is important because it, it, it's possible. It's just like, yeah, you're not that likely to be mugged tomorrow, but I still recommend you carry your gun. But the talk you actually have to have with your kids is how to know when a family member represents a danger. Because if you, if you, if you look at the numbers for things like molestation, most studies have shown that it, it's generally in molestation of children, around 10% is done by strangers that abduct the child or something like that. That, that 80, 90% of the time that the child that's abused is abused by somebody that knows them. So the, the truth is, statistically, a child going off to a camp with camp counselors and things like that is more likely to be abused than a child playing in the street. Doesn't mean it can't happen. It just means how, how heavily are we going to insulate children from any all risks and all dangers? You know, I, I tell you what, it's not likely the kids are going to be snatched off the street if the kid knows if somebody asks you to come over to the car and you don't know who they are, you don't go over to the car. And if they say, well, please come over here, you just run home. It's not likely at all. I'm not saying it can't happen. It has happened. There was a place near Lake Tahoe where some girl was playing on the street and, and people even saw it happen. Some stranger in a car came flying by, grabbed her, yanked her in the car and took off. And I don't think they ever found that girl. I remember seeing on one of those true crime things where it like altered the whole state of this town. So it can happen, but you can be sitting in your chair right now and a meteor can come through that gone roof and kill you too. We can't protect ourselves or our children from every single danger that exists. We are better off training our children how to deal with potential dangers than trying to prevent them from ever encountering them. Because if you prevent them from ever encountering them, sooner or later they are going to be trusted with it, and they don't know how to handle it. So over time, your supervision becomes less, and the responsibility of the child becomes more. But that training should be started very, very early. There are ages where, okay, a four-year-old that runs into traffic, you don't trust them. You don't. But... Damn, if you ain't got that taken care of a year later, you got a, either got a problem with the child that needs professional help or you got a problem in the way you're doing things, and it's probably you. And it's probably because, well, if you're going to just use the leash approach, right, that's not going to work. It doesn't teach the child any control. What you have to do with that is you put the child into a place where failure to comply results in punishment versus pain. So I, you, you start teaching the child, like, you don't go over there right now. But if they go over there, it's really not that big a deal, so they end up in a timeout or something. So they learn control. Uh, it's like parenting has become doing what the state says and doing what the state does. You're, you're, supposedly we're under imminent threat for terrorist attack. 
But your government's never come up once with a civil defense plan that involves independent thinking and action of its citizens. Back when this whole damn thing first started, and then then some of that, uh, what was it, that went around in the mail, the um, oh, the anthrax went around in the mail. They came up with this plan that was basically keep a room in your house and keep plastic and duct tape in there and duct tape the room shut if we tell you to. What? And then some dumbass suffocated himself by doing it before he needed to. The government in World War II had citizens paying attention to an actual threat. The government today has citizens afraid of a, of a, a phantom threat. You know, they say things are different today, and the reality is they're not. All things being equal, as far as the environment that a child's in, they're under no greater danger of anything today than they were 25 years ago. Um. Most of us in this audience, you know, most of us in the TSP community that are in our 30s or older, we grew up playing outside all day long, all the time. And guess what? There was one fat kid in school. Not 80% of the school was fat. Well, there's a reason. If I had a child today that was six or seven years old, I would consider the school system and child protective services to be greater threats to their welfare than the potential of some random stranger accosting them. I'm not saying the random stranger is not a threat. I'm not saying that people that they might even know and trust may not be a threat to them because they're a bigger threat than the random stranger. The numbers show that in, in, in both abduction and abuse. But I believe that the public school system and everything that goes with it in conjunction with the state operating as child protective services with their own rules, where they, they, they don't even follow the law. They just create their own rules on the fly and enforce them through a court system that is a mockery of the actual court system, that that's a bigger threat to the welfare of your kids if your kids are, you know, five, six, seven, eight years old today than, than a stranger. And it is a direct result of the average person becoming an idiot an absolute idiot that looks to the state to protect them instead of th considering that they have first responsibility to protect themselves. I'll tell you that I don't know what the solution to this one is because the, the authority vested in the state at this point in the name of protect the children is ridiculous. And I do think there's an entrepreneurial opportunity in that. I think that somebody should develop a course for parents if you're ever contacted by CPS, exactly how to handle it. And parents that are afraid, oh, if my child plays alone for five minutes, a CPS worker might find them. That's your fear, not the boogeyman. There's more CPS workers out there than boogeymen out there. And some of them, I believe they really are just incompetent, but they have quotas and they have to make them. And if they make them at your expense, they don't care. Some of them are probably really good at what they do, and they're doing it because they love children, they want to protect them, and probably have somewhat of a brain. But in this system, you have to keep going back to my analogy that I used to explain this to you just a couple weeks ago. This is an airplane, and it's meant to be flying certain ways, and some people in some positions that really would want to do the right thing end up doing what the state says because they have to. And... I, I really believe this, parents, that the greatest risk to your children, especially between the age of about 4 and 12, is the state. And specifically the state with the authority of CPS behind it. I, I would be much more concerned about a knock on my door from them 
than somebody grabbing my kid while they're playing in a park with a bunch of other kids. Now, it might be because they were playing in the park and some busybody idiot saw them and said, I think that's wrong. We're now living in a society today where we fear the people who are supposed to protect us. We see it in abuses by law enforcement, and CPS is just another branch of law enforcement. So if somebody out there really, a lawyer especially, who specializes in this type of thing, was smart, they would put together an online course on every possible type of initial engagement, exactly what you say and exactly what you do, and exactly how you avoid giving them any power at all, period. If somebody actually... And not, well, I know because I read. Somebody actually, I would, I would actually say that the person I would want to do this either needs to be an attorney or a former worker for CPS. I would love to have someone on for an interview about that subject because I think that, that is a clear and present danger to our children and our families. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Shane from Texas. Got a quick question for you. We just moved to a new property and we had horrible chiggers. I was wondering if you knew a permaculture way to get rid of chiggers. Or maybe promote uh, some of the pests, the predators of chiggers. Any help would be great. Thanks. Uh, I did as much research as I could, and I I can't give you a good answer. So I wonder if anybody else can. I will give you the the basics of control that we've always used and had success with. But I understand that some people have a problem with these things to the point where even if they have you know a, a, a lawn and they keep it mowed at two inches, they still have problems with them. So it's a, a matter of what the problem really is in its manifestation. But what we've always done is simply cut out excessive undergrowth and don't go into areas of excessive undergrowth unless you have to. And that's been the majority of the way. Whenever I've had problems with chiggers, it's always really been getting into the woods. I will tell you that what works very effectively as a repellent is sulfur. Powdered sulfur. When, we used, when I lived in Florida, we really had them there. And we would, when we would go into the woods and whatnot, we'd just take a sock full of powdered sulfur and bang it around your waist and around your pant legs or if you're wearing shorts around the, the parts of your shorts and your socks, top of your shoes, and anybody that's ever got them a lot knows you usually get them low on the calf, right on the waist, you know, or, or if you wear shorts, you get them like right below that cup. That just seems to be where they choose to, to, to get on you and crawl in. They're a little larval stage of a tiny insect. The old adult insect isn't the problem. It's the larva that actually come. And when you got chiggers, it's not bites. They're actually in you. Uh, and it's a pain in the ass, honestly. And I haven't found a good way to, uh, to, to treat it once you're dealing with it either. Uh, but rolling around on the ground with bare legs and arms is probably a bad idea for your kids, even though that's kind of sad because that's one of the great ways to be a kid. But in areas where they seem to be prevalent, I have, I've, I've, in my attempt to find you a solution, I've read people with problems in the lawns. I have never had, once ever had a problem with chiggers in a, in a you know grassy area, unless the grass is like four foot tall. Um, they're a woodland creature. There are some things that eat them, but I don't think you're going to get anything that eats them enough to really control them. Uh, if you had a tick problem, I'd tell you get some guinea hens, but I don't think guineas are really going to mess around with chiggers. They're just really too small. 
Um, but I do think if you had good bird populations, that helps control the insects overall and, and print out the undergrowth. The big reason I put this on the air is because it's not often that I get a question where I go, I just don't know. And not only do I just not know, I don't even know who would know. I, I, I really don't. Um, you know, when it, in the permaculture world, the people we'd send questions to, Ben Falk is in Vermont. You don't have a trigger problem in Vermont in Zone 4. Paul Wheaton is in Montana. You don't have a trigger problem in Montana. So I really don't know, you know, somebody really switched on with permaculture that has to deal with chiggers, other than maybe Nick Ferguson. So I know you're going to listen to this, Nick, because you're on it and you want to hear yourself. So if you have a solution or if anybody else out there has a permaculture-style solution, a natural solution to chiggers, I'd like to know about it. But my big thing's always been staying out of the heavy brush in the summertime when they're active, which is good to keep ticks off you too. Insect repellent as a whole works somewhat, but sulfur, powdered sulfur, around the waist and the ankles especially seems to have been the best preventative we had in Florida. And again, there were a lot of them there. If you didn't do that and you went off to spend a day in the woods, you ended up itching for weeks. Uh, with that, let's take another call. Hey, Jack Harry from New York. Uh, my question is about raising beef cattle on a small piece of property. Uh, background is uh, my wife and I have about five acres. We dedicate to raising some beef cattle. Uh, my wife grew up on a traditional farm, you know, and she is consistent that hay and feed would all be necessary, but I think um, shifting them around the five acres, if the land uh, was good enough, we'd be able to raise uh, a decent number of cattle on that little piece of property, and if managed correctly, uh, would be successful. Um, so basically, I, I was hoping to... Have you settled the argument between her and I? Uh, thank you. Love the show. Love what you do. Thanks, Jack. The answer is, dun, dun, dun. It depends. It depends on the land, the quality, how much pasture's there, what the pasture's made up of. But in all but the worst environments, the cattle can certainly get the majority of their nutrition from the land. Period. You're right about that. Um, hay, maybe, depends. Um, how far north are you? How cold does it get? Do they need, you know, if you're going to raise beef cattle, you're usually looking at 18 months, right? So you're going through a winter there. So you might have to give them a little bit of hay in the winter. Feed? No, cows eat grass. Hay is a type of grass. It's just a, a cured grass. Cows don't need feed and corn and they don't need it and they shouldn't have it. They're not supposed to eat it. And if they do, they should be getting a little bit of it here and there and some seed heads on some of their grazing. Cows eat grass. And and if you, you – well, you can't do that because the cow needs to be fed by a person. Go to the Serengeti and there's millions of grazing animals and all they eat is grass. Nobody feeds them. Alan Savory is taking cattle into places where nobody could find a blade of grass, and they browsed on whatever was there, never put a seed on the ground, and never given the cow a bit of feed, and they survive, and the land gets better. So it can be done. That said, a cow is a pretty big animal, and five acres is not a tiny piece of ground, but it's not a big piece of ground. I would say an absolute maximum density is 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 five cow units, which... Depends on the size of your cow, whether one cow counts as one or a half or one and a quarter. Um, but if you were going to be raising, let's say, two cattle a cycle, 
and you're going to be pushing two cattle through, let's say, a quarter or even twelfth of an acre paddocks using electrofence, and moving those cows every day, sometimes twice a day, and grazing on the one-third rule, and you're okay with your land all being pretty high in grass, well, guess what? You can do it no problem. And the land will get better, and the cows will be great, and the cows will be happy, and you can do it. And the reason your wife doesn't know that is she's never seen anybody done it. She's seen it done a completely different way, and so she believes that's how it's done. So if you took her somewhere like Greg Judy's place up in Missouri and he saw hundreds of head of cattle being managed that way, all of a sudden it would become, well, that just makes sense. But people that haven't ever seen anything, when you tell them about it, have a hard time grasping it. But am I saying you can just get some cattle, not worry about any hay or feed, and you'll be fine? No, because I don't know how much you know. I don't know what your land is like. I don't know how much time you have to dedicate to this. I don't know what resources you have to make sure that you're controlling the paddocks well. But can two to five cattle be managed without supplemental feed on five acres of decent to good pasture? Yes. Absolutely. It's been done too many times to say that it can't be done. Would I go that aggressive with numbers at first? Probably not. You're probably not thinking of that. I mean, two people, and you're trying to raise some beef for two people in an 18-month rotational cycles, you don't really need that many cows for two people, right? A cow a person every 18 months is a pretty good supplemental source of beef. So a couple you know, might just be right up your one, you know, two or three. Are you thinking of getting a cow? And having her inseminated and raising her calves? Or are you thinking of just getting some young calves and raising them up? It depends. When you get these calves, how old will they be? So how big will they be in the initial stocking density? That matters. That also pertains to how long they're going to be there. If you can time it right and you're finishing your beef, you're bringing the cow in for the last six months, You bring them in in the spring, and your summers aren't real harsh like mine. Well, it's cakewalk, isn't it? It all depends. So, it, it again, it's always, and it depends. Um, I will tell you that I don't, I'm not a fan of it, but the flavor of beef is interesting when you know, the cows are finished on grain. It does add a lot of fat to them quickly. And the way that you get that from cattle without giving them the grain is to graze them a little later in life, to, to, to harvest them a little bit older in life, and to make sure that you're timing their graduation date with the real, true, lush bounty of production so that they're on, like, really amazing pasture for, like, the last couple to four weeks before they graduate to Bovine University. But can you do it? Yes. Can you do it? It depends. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. I'm from California. I'm not comfortable giving my name as um, I was recently put onto a jury, and my question was about jury nullification. Is there any wording the jury must use to nullify, or is it simply finding the person not guilty when the facts show he is? I looked up everything I could find on it, and I did find episode 487, in which you said that you might do an entire show on it, but I couldn't find that show. I'm not certain that I would like to jurify, or excuse me, I would like to nullify the charges that um, my case will have, but I did want to know everything I could about it. So it really helped me to tell us more about that. 
thank you. Um, I love listening to your show. I've been listening since about almost 2008. You've really done a difference in my life. Thanks. Have a good day. No, juries don't need to use any special language in the nullification of a, a law. In fact, they should not, because that brings up the whole question of whether or not it was a legitimate verdict. Because the jury then, in essence, is saying, we find the defendant guilty, but are saying they're not guilty because we don't believe in the law. That could create all kinds of problems. The way a jury effectively nullifies the law is if there's, you know, the jury believes that the law is unjust, and the jury can just simply say not guilty. This will be directly counter to the instruction given to them by the court. The court will say that you are required to, to vote guilty or not guilty based on whether or not you believe the law has been violated, that you're not to judge the law. But that's not the way it works now, is it? Because effectively what you'd have a judge saying if this was enforced is we have, we have assigned that the, 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 the perpetrator, uh, the, the accused, is innocent until proven guilty by a jury, a jury of his peers according to our Constitution. But the judge is now ordering the jury to find the defendant guilty. doesn't work that way. This is why jury trials existed. There, there was no belief among the founders that a judge couldn't be capable of making a fair determination of whether or not the law has been violated. Now, they would certainly think that the wrong judge in the wrong situation could be a really bad thing because that would mean that judge could just choose to call, found people guilty. So it would make sense that you know having trial by judge would be a bad thing. But what about trial by panel of judges? I mean, if you just wanted to, if you just wanted to make adherence to the law and not give the people yet one more check on government, why wouldn't you just say that, that trials are to be uh, conducted by a, a lead judge and the lead judge gives guidance and a panel of, of five randomly selected judges make a decision or four or three. So you got an odd number four, four. And if there's a tie, the head judge makes the call. And the, every every trial just has random assigned judges in their paid positions, and would probably be more effective and easier than a jury trial, wouldn't it? And and you would not ha be able to say like these judges are ganging up because it would just be every trial would be random. At the time they wrote the Constitution, there weren't that many flipping trials. It wasn't like today where we incarcerate more of our people than any other nation ever has in the history of the world. The courts weren't bogged down. It would have been easy to do. Why didn't they do it? Because it was never supposed to be that a jury only determined guilt or innocence. Whether or not the accused should be here in the first place. And the only way that that's enforceable, and the founders being brilliant men, realized they didn't need to ever create a debate here, was just to say the jury's say is final. So here's how this worked. Does a jury have a right to nullify? Well, a right means that you are seen as inherently having the right. All right? So do they have a right? This is a little sticky because that would imply that you have the right as a citizen to say that another citizen is not guilty in service as a juror. I don't know that you do, 
what you do, but do you? I'm not sure, because it, it, that would have to actually then be implicitly understood. And it's not. But the real question is, do juries have the power to nullify? Not do they have the right. The right is something we can sit there and debate for days. What we really want to know is, do they have the ability? Do they have the power to nullify? The answer is yes. Here's why. You put somebody up on stage and, or up on, on, on trial, and, you, and the judge can say whatever he wants, and they say the, tr the, the charge here is the possession of marijuana with a, with a, with a sufficient quantity that we, we're, we're claiming intent to distribute. Uh, they really don't have a strong case about that. He just got, he had over an ounce. That's what the law says. Dude's up there like, man, dude, this is just possession. I smoke a lot of pot. You believe him. You're like, I don't want to find this guy guilty for intent to distribute. I don't think he has the mental capacity for intent to do anything beyond eat a Twinkie. <laughs> And I think he needs to see the Twinkie before he forms that intent. This guy's not a dope dealer. Right? And I'm saying a lot of people, a lot of us would just be like, I don't think marijuana should be illegal, not guilty. Right, but I'm saying you're even a person who, like, if I think the guy's dealing dope, I would vote guilty. But in this, they, your conscience is weighing on you. They're they're sending this guy up for a much bigger charge than simple possession, and I don't, I don't think that that he's guilty of that. But the law says he's now. Think about that. The law simply says the state has the burden of proof to prove that this person had in their possession a quantity in excess of blank. And that's not really, and the guy for whatever reason says, I'm going to plead not guilty, dude. And he does, and he even, maybe he even manages to make the case, even though the court tells him to shut up about jury nullification. You hear that and you think to yourself, I, I don't want to vote guilty on this. And, and, and the court has said, by preponderance of the evidence, it's expected. Well, you can expect one thing and shit in the other hand and see which one fills up first, Okay. That's just how it works. Sorry, court. You don't get to tell the juror how to vote. So you and enough members of the jury go, no, not guilty. Well, they can gnash their teeth and wring their hands, but you know what they can't do? Jack diddly shit, and they can't retry him on the same charge. They would have to come up with a new charge to charge him with because he's protected by what's called double jeopardy. So one way or another, juries absolutely have the power to nullify. I don't care whether you think it's right, it should be, whatever. We have the power. We, the people, are vested with the ultimate power in the trial and conviction of a fellow citizen for the commission of a crime according to the state. No matter what the state does, unless they circumvent the court system, which is why it's so important that we don't let them, even with people we don't like, We, the people, always have the final check. The people of this country, by a, a, a simple majority in the public, could effectively nullify any law within a couple years. If, the most, if most of the people thought this law just shouldn't be anymore, no matter what your senators do, no matter what your Congress does, if every single person that was ever accused of that crime required, I'm not taking a plea bargain, I want a jury trial. And there were enough people in the general population that there were a few on every jury that were going to vote not guilty and not give up. And you're going to end up with a bunch of hung juries or a bunch of juries being won over by people that just like, yeah, we really shouldn't put this guy in jail for this. And they're going to do it, but he did it. Well, this is new. And what are you going to do? Not guilty. But, but, 
We, the people, have spoken not guilty. That's how jury nullification works. It, it is that simple, and that's why it's hard for people to understand that you have a right to do this. If you didn't, think about this, if you didn't, you would have the state mandating that the jury that's supposed to ensure impartiality vote guilty. In other words, you'd have the state making the, making the declaration of guilt or innocence. You have to leave it to the jury. Now, prosecutors are very good at ferreting out people that they think might be this kind of person. So you have to be a little bit subversive as a juror. And you can't state in any way or give any inkling during the screening process that you would be that person. And as a juror, you shouldn't be there with the intent. I love what you said. Like, I'm not sure I want to do that here. Well, you, you shouldn't just want to do it. You should actually examine your conscience and examine the facts. First of all, a guy might be innocent. If the guy's innocent, period, like he didn't break the law, if the defense makes an adequate, adequate case of, of innocence or it's simply not proven beyond a reasonable doubt, well, you vote not guilty because they didn't make their case. The next thing is, did the state follow procedure in the law that they're required to in the making of their case and the gathering of evidence? Yes, they did. Okay, now I think he did it, and I think the state did what they were supposed to do the right way, and I don't think that we've had a you know, subversion of justice here. Now, do I think there was a victim to this crime? That's my, I'm not saying that's what you should ask. That's my question. Was there a victim to this crime? The only victim I can see here is the accused. I'm real close to voting not guilty. Right there. Which is probably, since I publicly state that, well, I'll never be on a jury. But I think if people would get there, then we would have a lot less people in prison today. And maybe we'd have more room for the people that actually belong there that actually do have victims in their crime. And then if there's no victim, my next question is, do I believe that this should be a criminal activity in the first place? Because a lot of things that I don't think should be a crime, you might think should be a crime. And, you know, I think you should vote your conscience. But I think you should take a really deep examination of your conscience. And in doing that, you should ask yourself, what kind of laws have we had in the past where people could be sent to jail for things? Like heresy. Well, I could be burned for that at one time. Oh, we don't live in that world anymore. Yeah, but how do we get out of that world? Do we get that out of that world because the state gave up its power because the people took it back? And if we stop taking it back, do we just start to turn the corner and go back to where we came from with a new paint job? That's where I think we end up. So jury nullification. I'm forward in the right circumstances. I'm not going to go serve on a jury and think, I'm going to nullify this no matter what and find out the guy raped two kids. I want him in prison for the rest of his natural life if he did it. I actually want something far worse for him than that, but that, I'll settle for that. I'm not nullifying that. Dude had a couple ounces of weed in his glove box. Not guilty. You haven't heard the evidence yet. Okay, I'll sit here and pretend to listen to the evidence, but my answer is not guilty. I don't care. He doesn't have a victim. It didn't hurt me. It didn't hurt society. And you're wasting my time and the, and the, and, and the people's money to try to put this person in jail for possessing a plant. Not guilty. And some of you might think that's really bad stuff and we need to do something about it. Well... By the way our law works and our Constitution works, you should vote your conscience. But it only takes a few people to make a big difference this way. And I see it as an opportunity. And I think that there's a lot of opportunities to nullify a lot of laws 
if our citizens would only get informed. But I tell you what, if our citizens got informed, there'd probably be a hell of a lot less need to do it that way. So we're at a point now in society where we have to make our own decisions for ourselves and our own lives and our own ways. That's part of something like jury nullification. I do have this to say to you folks, all of you right now, about jury service. If you ever find yourself on a jury, never fail to follow both your gut and your conscience. If there is a victim in the event, then that person's justice is now your responsibility. But even if there's a victim, whether or not the person that's being accused is actually guilty, well, that person's justice is in your hands as well. And if there is no victim, if there's no victim to the crime, one would just through logic understand that you must think more about the accused than the state. The accused is your fellow citizen. The state is not. The state is the control of the citizen. And in some instances, the victimless criminal is facing things that may involve like rehab, and they might really need it. I don't know that they should be forced by the state, but I can see why you might do it. But if you, I want you to always think this way. If that was my son or daughter up there, would I consider the penalty they're facing while painful, just. And if the answer is no, if the answer is no, I leave it to you to complete the rest of that sentence. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.